This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're looking tonight at verse 30 through uh, chapter 12, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Paul is indulging himself in the foolishness, indeed the word he uses is madness, of boasting in himself. Not because he's eager to do it, not because he enjoys doing it, but because he wants to answer his opponents according to their folly. These false teachers that have troubled the church in Corinth. And Paul says, fine, if we want to compare resumes, I'll do that. And he speaks of these various uh, qualifications, his, his Hebrew identity, his suffering in his service to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. Well, we pick up in verse 30 where Paul really kind of turns things around, still boasting, but a different kind of boasting, not boasting in those things that would make him seem strong, but rather, as he says, those things that indicate his weakness. So we pick up with verse 30. Paul says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Lord, open to us your word this evening, here in these closing hours of the day. We pray that you would give clarity to our minds 
and uh, hunger to our hearts to learn the truths of your word. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. July 20th is one of the red-letter banner days in human history, an anniversary of one of perhaps the most significant achievement mankind has ever accomplished. Anybody know what it was? Steve? Yeah, Susan? Man on the moon, exactly. 39 years ago today, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin first walked on the moon. Uh, There were a number of Apollo missions afterward, up to Apollo 17, if uh, Apollo 13, which never actually uh, landed on the moon, uh, is ruled out. You look at, from those from 11 to 17, a total of 12 men uh, out of all of human history who left their footprints behind on another planet. I know the moon's not a planet, but another uh, body in space actually walked on a foreign, on an alien landscape. Who was the third man on Apollo 11? Michael Collins. Very good. Now, I mentioned Michael Collins because I always felt sorry for him, uh, quietly orbiting in his loneliness the surface of the moon while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin got all the attention. But Michael Collins kept the get home ship running so that they could, in fact, get home. But of the men who walked on the moon out of all of human history, we have to recognize that they are, in fact, a very select company, uh, a very small segment of humanity who experienced that uh, sublime step of setting foot on the surface of the moon. Well, as we look at our passage tonight, we see a case of another human being who experienced something that very few, if any, at least in this particular way, have ever experienced, and that is to be transported into heaven itself. Now, Paul has been talking about his boasting and he, he, he turns things around and begins to boast about his weakness. And it's, it's a little strange. We broke it up this way because verses 30 to the end of chapter 11 seem to fit and set the stage for what follows in chapter 12. Because Paul, in verse 30, says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And then he proceeds to talk about being lowered in a basket out of the wall uh, there in Damascus. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. They were after him, this man who had once uh, persecuted the believers, uh, in fact now has become one of them and is preaching and defending this Christ whom he once was persecuting. And it didn't take long before there were those who wanted to silence him by putting him to death. And so he was secretly lowered out of the city in a basket. Now, as you read, as the passage we saw uh, several weeks ago, where Paul describes his ministry experiences, the 40 lashes minus one, beaten with rods, stones, shipwrecked, all this danger that he goes through from everybody, toil and hardship, sleepless nights, his concern, his burden for the churches. And then he starts talking about being lowered in a basket out of the city. It seems a little bit anticlimactic. You know, as you reach the end of the list. Well, that's why I think in Paul's mind anyway, he's on a new train of thought here. Uh, Being lowered out of the basket doesn't really go with the other suffering that he endured. It was significant in that it was his first humiliation, in a sense, as an apostle of Christ, his first 
instance of suffering, although it was fairly mild compared to what he would suffer later. But for once, he was not in control. For once, he was not calling the shots. For once, now, he was fleeing for his life, being persecuted by those who were persecuting Christ. But it does seem, in fact, to look forward to chapter 12, because Paul says, now I'm going to talk about my weakness, boast in those things. And the first evidence, the first fruits of his weakness was being lowered out in the cover of night in order to escape with his life. And so Paul talks about three occurrences. First is that of being lowered in a basket. We've been referring to that. And Paul just describes how the city was guarded in verse 32, but he was let down in a basket through a window and was able to escape. And so that's that's an instance of his weakness, of his being dependent on others to uh, to protect him, to look out for him. Uh, and it wouldn't be the last time. But then Paul goes on boasting, and he's really getting toward his thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. But before he can talk about that, he has to talk about something else that happened. And it was this experience that he describes. Now, there is a sense in which this is a strength. Paul can talk about this mysterious experience that God privileged him to have. And so he says in verse 1, I must go on boasting. Nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. By way of comparison with these false teachers. Now, the way Paul describes this, even though he is talking about it, apparently has never talked about it before. uh, And even though he is speaking of it in a sense to boast uh, in terms of revelations and visions of the Lord, he surpasses those troublers of the Corinthian church. It's kind of weird the way he does it. He talks about himself sort of in the third, well, very much in the third person, almost as if it was someone else. Because as much as he wants to bring this up and talk about it as a way of commending himself to the Corinthians, it's very hard for him to do so. You sense his reluctance, his hesitation, and almost an involuntary involuntary distancing himself from it in the way that he talks about it third person. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now let's stop there. The third heaven, uh, that's given interpreters much to work on. Some have said, well, you know, back then they had a sort of a seven-tier view of heaven. Well, if that's true, the third heaven isn't even halfway. It's, you know, kind of a mediocre blessing. He didn't really get the seventh heaven. He just kind of made it to the third floor. Not much of a view from the third floor. Well, that's probably not what Paul has in mind. Uh, Others have suggested sort of a cosmological scheme with the Earth's atmosphere being the first heaven, as we would look up, say, the heavens, uh, the the actual outer space, the stars, planets, and so forth, being the second heaven above the atmosphere, beyond the atmosphere, uh, with the third heaven being heaven itself. And there may be something to that. Um, But it seems best to me to sort of understand that reference to the third heaven in Jewish terms. Now, you all have read or studied or heard preached Isaiah 6 with the, uh, the angels surrounding the throne crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That, that three times intensification of that attribute of holiness, emphasizing uh, the depth of it, the richness of it, the overwhelming nature of it. And I think, 
out of a Jewish background, I think that's what Paul is getting at. He refers to the third heaven, to heaven in its fullest sense of being in the presence of God, of being uh, there where uh, mortals don't tread, where we here on earth uh, are not privileged to enter, at least until our death, by the grace of, of God but into the very presence of God himself. And I think that's what Paul is referring to by this term, the third heaven. Uh, Not so much a a level as a degree to truly experience the reality of heaven. Not even just a taste of it, but to be there, to see it, to experience it. Well, Paul says twice, uh, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know God knows. Uh, Paul indicates that he really he really can't even explain the nature of this visitation to the third heaven. Um, perhaps it was merely in his spirit that the Lord brought him into heaven. Uh, perhaps it was bodily that the Lord brought him into heaven. And in fact, uh, when we die, we will enter heaven as our souls, a disembodied soul in that intermediate state awaiting the resurrection. Um, But Paul doesn't know the true nature of this experience. He says God knows, but he himself does not know. This man was caught up into paradise, uh, whether in the body again or not, he doesn't know. And verse 4, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And again, the question here is that is it such sublime truth or revelation that it's simply not able to be communicated in human language? Or was it uh, that he was not allowed to repeat the things that he witnessed and experienced? We don't know. Maybe some of both. At any rate, there were things obviously that Paul uh, encountered or heard that uh, he simply cannot repeat whatever way. And he says in verse 5, On my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. I would be speaking the truth. But he says, I refrain so that people won't think more of me than what they hear from me or what they see in me. In other words, what they truly find me to be. Um, Paul had this experience. Uh, There might be those who would be tempted to respond inappropriately. Remember, there were those on Paul's missionary journeys who tried to worship him, uh, despite their best efforts to dissuade the crowd from that. And Paul says, I'm I'm reluctant to boast about this. I do, and it's the truth. But I don't want people to elevate me or think more highly of me because of this experience. I want them to think of me what they see in me, what they hear from me. In other words, the Christian character in my life, the truth from my lips. And so Paul describes this, this sublime vision. Now, I say that Paul was perhaps one of a few. Maybe his was unique in the nature of it, but it might be something similar to what Isaiah experienced in that revelation of glory that God gave to him and perhaps some others, but certainly uh, a very select company who experienced something even more transcendent than walking on the moon. And Paul describes that experience here. Uh, it's interesting. I, I want to read just a few words from uh, my, my old systematic theology professor, Dr. Douglas Kelly, from this little book of studies that he has on Second Corinthians, describing this experience of Paul, this being transported into the supernatural realm, into heaven itself. 
Um, and Paul's reticence to talk about it. And in fact, mentioning it, but giving very little information, in fact saying he can't, about what he saw. Dr. Kelly says, The current interest in people who claim to have had out-of-body, near-death experiences raises questions as to why they have so much to say about it when the Apostle Paul was so restrained. If you've ever heard Dr. Kelly talk, you can just hear him saying this. Perhaps if God showed us too much of the glory ahead, we might be restless, might find it too difficult to stay here on earth. So the Lord wants you to be content here, to be grateful to be on earth until he gets you ready to go to glory, which will surely be soon enough. And he goes on to say, talking about 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, not 2, but 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul describes the resurrection. Resurrection of Christ as the guarantee, the first fruits of the believer's resurrection. And he says, he ends that chapter, Therefore, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And uh, Dr. Kelly continues, Because he is risen, you make yourself available to work for him now. Think how that encounter 14 years earlier had steeled Paul's spine to suffer the kind of things he suffered. Because unlike the other apostles, unlike us, Paul actually saw that about which he preached. And think how that equipped him in a unique way to be the apostle that he was. Well, Dr. Kelly says, as we speak of the resurrection and of glory, as Paul ends the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, well, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That equips you for service now as we contemplate glory then. Well, we don't have to have an experience like Paul's to know the reality of eternity. Certainly be a blessing if God chose to give us that, as he did, Paul. But that's very few who have actually experienced that. Because he is risen, you make yourself available to work for him now. The proper response to knowing for certain you're going to glory is to offer him your body, mind, and resources here and now. The great resurrection chapter is immediately followed by chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, which is all about taking up the collection. You would probably rather stay in, the, in glory, but God wants you to deal with the offering plate. The fact is, Paul had to come down off that mountaintop experience and deal with churches that were you know, fighting him, that were divided, that were following false teachers and all of this kind of thing. Uh, any particular encounter that God might give us with him is not ultimately an escape. Any, any new revelation of himself, and I use that word advisedly, that he gives to you in the scriptures is equipping you for service here and now. And yes, we should long for glory, but God has us to live here now. And even Paul had to return from the third heaven better equipped, better encouraged for life and ministry here in this world until such time as God should call him home permanently. We may want to stay in glory, but we do have to deal with the offering. And our children's homework and paying bills and all of the kind of things that make up life here in this world. And like Dr. Kelly said, glory will come soon enough. But that's the second experience. The first was being lowered to basket, humbling experience. The second was this magnificent, transcendent, sublime experience of being transported into heaven itself. But then Paul describes a third occurrence. A third experience, one that truly was humbling and one that sealed him 
in his weakness. And that is his thorn in the flesh. Look at verse 7. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Now remember Paul said, I don't want people to think more of me than they should except what they see in me, except what they find me actually to be. Not think more highly of me because I've had this experience. But that includes Paul himself. To keep me from being elated, too puffed up, too hung up on myself, we might say. Too proud of myself because of this experience. A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from being too elated. God gave Paul this almost incomprehensible privilege of this glimpse of glory. But he also, with it, provided a counterbalance. This thorn in the flesh. Now, those who've speculated... uh, are, are just that. They're speculating. We don't have any idea what Paul was referring to here. Uh, it could well be some sort of bodily ailment. After all, he refers to a thorn in his flesh. Um, and there's been all kind of speculations raised as to possibly Paul's eyesight being bad, or perhaps very nearsighted, um, to possibly suffering from fits of epilepsy to all kinds of things. But your guess is as good as in the New Testament scholars, because we really just don't know what it was. But we do know that whatever it was, uh, was very difficult for Paul, was, was, was humbling, perhaps embarrassing for Paul, and at least in human terms was a hindrance to his ministry. Because of what Paul goes on to say. Yes, he was given this magnificent experience of, of, of seeing heaven, But he was also given this very humbling experience of this ailment, this messenger of Satan under God's superintendent, sovereignty, of course. Nevertheless, uh, uh, Paul could even say this is satanic, whatever it was, to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. And Paul says in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave it's hard to know what to make of that, exactly how to understand what Paul's saying. Did it maybe three different days he prayed, Lord, please take this away, and that was it? I'm inclined not to think that, because this obviously was something that was life-changing for Paul, something that was a tremendous burden to him. And when he says, three times I prayed, I'm inclined to think that that was more likely three seasons of prayer or three three times, three periods in his life where he gave himself to praying that the Lord would heal him of this or remove this thorn. And we can imagine the argument he would have used, uh, among which the arguments he would have used, among which would be, uh, Lord, how much more effective I could be in ministry for you if I was not plagued by this, this ailment, by this thing. Um, three times. And God didn't exactly say no, but he did. But it wasn't in those words. 
Now, maybe Paul didn't have enough faith. Well, I think he did. The point is, this was God's purpose for him, and Paul could pray 300 times. And God wasn't going to remove it, because God had a purpose for Paul. One was to keep him from being too pleased with himself about this experience God had given him. But the other was to demonstrate God's own power. God's answer wasn't no in so many words. What God said was in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's answer when Paul would come each time in this praying was, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You see, God didn't want Paul thinking he could do the ministry himself. The last thing the Lord wanted for Paul was for Paul to think that somehow he could do it better without that thorn. Because thorn or not, Paul couldn't do anything except as God worked through him. And that thorn was to remind Paul of that. To remind Paul that even though the Lord had given him this opportunity to experience heaven itself, to hear and see things that we would not hear and see this side of heaven until we're there. Um, Paul was just fallen human clay like the rest of us. And the Lord wanted him to remember that. His grace was sufficient in dealing with this ailment. And God's power would be seen in his weakness. He didn't need Paul's strength. He wanted Paul's weakness to display his own strength. And so Paul's response, apparently satisfied now, having pleaded three times or over three seasons, he accepted the Lord's answer. And he says, therefore, I will boast, getting back to this theme of boasting, all the more gladly of my weaknesses. No reluctance here. No third person here. No hesitancy. No saying I'm out of my mind to talk like this. He will gladly boast in his weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. How many of us can say that? We're content with that kind of stuff. Well, Paul has just given this tremendous list of the hardships he's endured, and he finally can come around and say, I'm content with that, because when I am weak, then I'm strong. Paul came to see that the thorn in the flesh, while it humbled him, was also the key to his effectiveness. Because when Paul recognized that he could do nothing, then God could do almost anything through him. God could do anything through him. And Paul wanted to be in that position. And he recognized that that thorn that the Lord had given him helped him to be there and helped him to remain there. And so... He doesn't want to boast about his Jewish heritage. He doesn't want to boast about the suffering he's experienced. He doesn't want to boast about his care for the churches. And he doesn't even really want to boast about this spiritual experience that he had. What he wants to talk about is his weakness. Because that's where the power of Christ is seen. And that, more than anything else, sets him apart from the false apostles. Because they wanted their credentials. They wanted their power. They wanted their effectiveness. They wanted their reputation to be prominent in the minds of the Corinthians. Paul wanted Christ to be prominent in the minds of the Corinthians. Not himself. And that is the mark of a true apostle. 
And that is the mark of a true servant of Christ to the present day. And that is the mark of any Christian who wants Christ exalted and himself definitely in the background. And so Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, we need to be careful that we don't label difficulties the Lord may give us as a thorn in the flesh. One, Paul's was given in response to a unique experience he was given. And yet, the principle certainly is the same in our lives. Uh, There are all kinds of things that we might think, Lord, if I didn't have this, some physical difficulty, or if I didn't have this, some personality quirk, or if I didn't have this, some set of circumstances, financial or social or family, I could do so much better. Could you? You see, the Lord emphasizes to us our weakness so that he can show us his grace and so that he can show us his strength. We need to look at those things, take another look at those things in our lives that we think are a hindrance to our effectiveness as Christians, to our effectiveness uh, as Laborers in the kingdom, serving in the church, whatever it might be. And we need to pray that God will give us a new perspective of those things that we think drag us down. Because those may be the very things that God uses to accomplish the work of his kingdom through us. We put those in his hands and say, okay, Lord, this is a position of weakness. But show your strength in me in this. Show your strength through me in this. Because as Paul says, when we are weak, then we are strong. Maybe we should think a little more highly of those things that we consider weaknesses. So that the power of Christ might rest on us. And after all, it's not our power that we want. It's his power. And his power isn't seen in our strength. It's seen in our weakness. Let's pray. Father, I confess there are all kinds of things I thought would be nice to have changed or be different in me that I could serve you better but Father we thank you for those things that you bring into our lives that emphasize how dependent we are on you Father we thank you for not letting us think too highly of ourselves thank you that you keep us humble and Father we pray that you would Lord you've given us a magnificent experience of knowing you Tremendous blessing of your grace that so many have not had, do not have. But Father, keep us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to, from being too elated as if we were something special to have the privilege of knowing you. But Lord, humble us. Show us our weakness. Show us, Father, how our weakness is the opportunity for your strength and your power to be seen in our lives so that the glory would be yours. The praise would go to you. And Father, we thank you that you do work through our weakness. That encourages us. That gives us hope. Because we want your glory, not our own. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.